Welcome back to Social Soul Podcast. I'm Haley. And I'm Jess. And you guys know we're big fans of people sharing their stories and being really vulnerable online. And today's guest definitely does that. We found her through TikTok and how to have her on the show. She's a video creator, bartender, mom, cheer coach, and she's over four years sober. So we're happy to introduce Abby Fickley for today's episode. We're going to get right into it. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Abby. We're really excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I would love to just start this off with you sharing a little bit about your experience with addiction and getting sober. I feel like you've got a really great story and I just feel like our listeners will connect with it. So I'd love to hear from you on that. Absolutely. Um, It can be tricky because there's so much and anybody who is in recovery knows that the timeline of things is messy and there's so much recovery and in my story at least, and then relapse and then recovery and relapse. And, you know, it took me a while to get it. So my story is very messy, but there's, (laughs) there's a message within the messiness. So, you know, it's, that's, what's great. Um, So to go all of the way back, I started just kind of dabbling with substances, um, mainly just alcohol at first. Uh, You know how it usually starts for a lot of us in high school. Um, And that was really it. I did, you know, I I messed around with benzos here and there, but nothing too crazy. Looking back now, I see signs. There were definitely red flags. Like I always tell people this this story because it's one thing that I remember so vividly. I remember one time in high school, my mom was mad at me because my room was dirty. She told me I needed to clean it. And so I opened a can of Coke and I took my dad's captain and I poured a little bit of, I I emptied some of the Coke and poured the captain in it. And I was alone in my bedroom and I put music on and I was drinking this captain in a Coke can to clean my bedroom. And looking back, I'm like, I don't think that's super normal to feel the need to drink alcohol to get your room clean. But that was the first time, or at least one of the first times that I can remember that I used substance to get me through, right? Whether that be an emotion or a physical chore that I didn't want to do in this case. Um, but then, of course, down the road within my story, there's a lot of that. Um, you know, I later would go on to graduate high school and then I went to cosmetology school. During cosmetology school is when I met my daughter's father, or I'm sorry, I didn't meet him. That's when I started dating him. We went to high school together. Um, and I got pregnant in the middle of beauty school. So I finished out beauty school, graduated pregnant, passed my state boards, um, pregnant. And then I had my daughter and everything was good up until this point. And then I was diagnosed with postpartum depression, very, very severe PPD. Um, and I did reach out for help. I went and I saw, you know, a grouping of therapists and psych- psychiatrists and um, they prescribed me benzos. So that was the immediate solution for the first time when I took one after experiencing all of the feelings that I was feeling for so long, which was really just like depression, anxiety, not being happy, not being content with my life or satisfied in any way. There was just no serotonin anywhere. Um And I remember when I took that first pill that was prescribed to me by a doctor, that was the first moment that I finally had found a solution to what I was feeling. And I think that just 
subconsciously I clung to that so hard and I would then rely on it for the next five, six, seven years. I mean, it, I went down a really bad path. So it started out with, with the benzos and then I started to drink more and then I started mixing them, which at the time I I wasn't aware of how deadly this combination would be. Um, and I definitely faced consequences from, from it. Um, I totaled cars more than one, more than two, which looking back today, I'm so grateful that I never hurt anyone, God forbid, you know, or myself, of course, but just really scary, really dangerous situation. So this would be the first time that I ever experienced um, a night in jail um, after totaling a car. So this is kind of when my legal issue started, but I still didn't see myself as somebody who had a problem. Um, when my daughter was about one and a half, her dad and I split. I moved back in with my parents. Just kind of, I was, I was still, I was working in salons at this time, but I was stuck in this like world of assisting. So I wasn't making very good money. I was getting paid hourly as a hairstylist assistant, leaving with tips, you know, shampooing. So I wasn't in a place quite yet to move out on my own. So I moved back in with my mom and dad. And that's a huge trigger in itself for me, mainly living with my mother. Um, I didn't realize that at the time that took a lot of work to then, you know, later realize once I got sober and was able to identify all of these different things. And that was a really, really big one. My mom, um, I've since learned how to set, you know, boundaries with her. Um, so with that being said, I went downhill real bad from there. So I was living with them and around this time is when I was introduced to opiates. So I found those and then that was kind of when it was off to the races more than ever. Um, but I had still never at this point, um, experienced, um, a physical dependence. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, I would, I would use, and then I would not use for a couple of days. And of course, in those days where I wouldn't use, I didn't feel great, but I was never sick. I had never experienced withdrawals or anything like that. But, you know, family life was getting so bad. My siblings weren't really speaking to me. My parents were really worrying about me. I wasn't a good mom. I was not a good mom. Um, you know, also having my daughter at 19, I I missed out. I mean, I did. I missed out on, on a lot of, of, my, of my life in my 20s. Um, so I think that I was trying to make up for some of that subconsciously. I mean, it definitely wasn't – I wasn't doing it on purpose, but – I just, I didn't want to be a mom. I wanted to party. And so, you know, I was, I was out and I was just making bad decisions. And just naturally with that, I was hanging out with really bad people and not in, not in a good crowd. And so that wasn't helpful, you know, just finding people that were doing the same things I was doing and I wasn't doing anything very good. Um, so finally I was hit with the ultimatum, go to rehab or you don't have your family. So my first response to that was, defense and I, you know, wanted to prove them wrong. I'll, I'll make it without you guys. And then you'll see was kind of my attitude. I remember. And so I tried, I went maybe like another month and I was just so depressed and so miserable. And at this point I was just living with whoever would let me sleep on their couch. Um, my daughter's father does not have, you know, any addiction issues. So he was always there. So he was taking care of, uh, my daughter for the most part, my parents were helping him. Um, but I was just kind of couch surfing. So finally I got tired of living like this and I called my mom and told her that I was ready to get help. 
So, you know, me being selfish, I'm like, well, if I have to go to rehab, I want to go somewhere cool, somewhere fun that I've always wanted to go. And for me, that was California. Um, so I hopped on a plane and I went out there for treatment. This is where my story tends to be a, a, a bit different from a lot of other people's. And I just like to say this off the bat. Whenever I tell this part of my story, I don't ever want to scare people, right? Because I every I've made every decision in my life thus far that has led me to where I am, whether that be good or bad. Um, but unfortunately, when I went to treatment in California, at first I was taking it seriously. You know, I planned to get sober and go home after 30 days. That was my initial plan. Um, I met some really great girlfriends. It was an all it was an all women's treatment center in Palm Springs, California. And, um, you know, after that 30 days, everybody was kind of talking about, you know, a three month outpatient, which is pretty typical after you do inpatient. Um, and so I decided I wanted to do it and I I wanted to do it in California. So I me and a girl that I got really close with, we both chose to go to the same place. So we then went to, you know, I completed 30 days of treatment. My parents flew all the way. I, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I'm across, clear across the map. Um, so my parents came out at one point to visit me for like a family day all the way from Pittsburgh, which was so sweet. They got to take me out. Um, and that was fun. We like went to Rodeo and we just did a lot of really cool things. And then when I graduated, I ended up going to a three-month outpatient that was in Orange County. So at that point, I was in Southern California. I lived in a sober living with a lot of girls in these like crazy nice homes, you know, and um, just nothing I had, had ever experienced before over on the West Coast. And it was just like this. It was exciting for me. And I think it was very distracting for me as well. Like I was kind of losing focus. Um, I was sober, but I just was losing focus on the end goal, which was getting home and getting back to being the mother that my daughter deserved. Right. So um I don't know what happened one day, me and this girl that I had met in the inpatient that we went to this outpatient together and we were even roommates in the outpatient too. We both stayed home one day from IOP and this just, this is how strong triggers are and just how this works. I don't even remember what initiate we were doing step work. We were sitting in the backyard and we were doing step work and we somehow got to talking about getting high. And one thing led to the next, and we decided that we were going to go and do it. We were going to go. We were going to call somebody. We were going to do it one time, and then we were going to go back to the sober thing, and we were never going to speak of it. We swore up and down that neither one of us would tell anybody, and we would, we'd be cool. We'd keep going with it, with the sobriety thing. So we met up with someone, and, um, you know, we. I don't know how much I can say on here, so I don't want to, like. No, you're totally free to say whatever. Okay. Yeah. So she calls somebody and she gets us heroin. And at this point, we were on the West Coast, so it's a specific type. And, you know, the only way that people really do it out there is they um, inject it or smoke it, I guess. But in the, in, the, in the situation we were in at the time, we had no other way to do it other than to inject it. And I mean, I even, I even remember, I, I didn't want to do it. I was scared. I always swore up and down. I would never do that. I remember I tried like putting it up my nose and it just, it wasn't, so finally I was like, just do it. And I will never forget. I was at the San Clemente pier in the family restroom. Um, 
sitting on a baby changing table. And I went like this and I closed, I closed my eyes and I put my hands over my eyes and I put my arm out and I just kind of braced myself. Mm-hmm. And I knew, you know, I wasn't in a good place, of course, but no matter how down and out I was or what I was, decisions I was making, I knew that this was probably the worst decision that I could possibly make. And it's interesting how even in knowing that you will still do it when you are not in the right state of mind. And so, you know, she did it and it felt, you know, I just, the warm, fuzzy feeling I got and I just, that was it for me. So unfortunately, the reason I say that is because this first time in treatment really wasn't my first time in treatment. It was my introduction to a nightmare that I never, ever was, I was never prepared for. I never expected it. I never expected someone like, you know, me to go down a path like this. I didn't understand um, that drug addicts could be anybody. You know what I mean? I always viewed them as, I don't know, people that were homeless or, I mean, you know, I stigmatized it. I did. I didn't know any better. I grew up privileged. Um, You know, my parents were able to provide us the things that we needed or wanted growing up. We were, if we had a certain college that we dreamed to go to, they could make it happen for us, me and my siblings. And I never realized how privileged I really was until I went backwards and fell flat on my face, which I would later then have to kind of rebuild so much of my life that I never otherwise would have needed to do because my parents worked hard enough so that we would never have to do that. So yeah, yeah, this was kind of the beginning of a few more years of just disaster more than ever. Um, Not in that particular moment and not that, not even that particular day. So actually after we did that, she ended up coming clean to our therapist at the outpatient. (laughs) which I was not happy about, but I, honesty is the best policy, right? So they ended up sending her to a treatment center for, they do that a lot in California. If you relapse in an outpatient facility, they make you go to a detox for like two days, even if you don't need to detox, kind of, I guess, as punishment. Um, and for whatever reason, they sent her like far away. Like she had to get on a plane. She was still in California, but she had to get on a plane and go somewhere far. I stayed but they made me go to a little detox center, which it was definitely punishment because I was the only person there besides this like 24 hour nurse. I had, I, oh, it was horrible. I mean, I true, it was like the definition of sitting with yourself. I, I'll never forget that. Um, so unfortunately I was on my parents' insurance at the time. So when I went to this, you know, detox for a day or two as punishment, they called my parents. Um, and I remember this was right before Christmas and I was supposed to go home to visit my daughter for Christmas and my parents canceled the flight. They they were just like, so I didn't speak to them for a little while and my decision had way worse consequences than I had imagined. Um, you know, so that's, that was the one and only to this day Christmas or holiday in general that I ever missed with my child, which hurts to think about, but it was a direct, you know, result of my decision. So anyway, um, I spent a couple of days in that little detox for punishment. I go back to the outpatient center in the sober living that I lived in and I complete treatment there. Um, a lot of the little details I will kind of skip over because it's very repetitive. And what I mean by that is there were about three different times where I went from California back to Pittsburgh, back to California, back to Pittsburgh. And so just to kind of sum that up, 
um, I was running from myself. And so essentially anytime I would make a really big mess, wherever I was, it was time to go to the other place. It was always between California and Pittsburgh. So I come home from California, um, thinking I'm ready after my little incident and my relapse, I stayed sober and I came home. Um, I didn't really use many of the tools that I'd learned in California. And I'll also be honest, when I was out there, I did get a sponsor because it was like mandatory to do it in in the sober living I was in to live there. You had to do this. But I did not fully work the steps. I went really the only thing I did was go to meetings. I didn't really call the sponsor. I didn't really do the steps. I was just doing meetings. So yeah, I, I just I didn't have many tools. I come home. I don't know anybody in the rooms here in Pittsburgh because I had never gotten sober here. My initial um, getting sober was in California, right? So like anybody I knew that was sober, any meetings that I knew of, it was all in California. Now, of course, I could have gained access to these tools. I could have made some phone calls. I could have went online and looked at, you know, AA meetings and I didn't. Um, so my sobriety did not last long. The other thing was when I moved home, I moved back in with my parents, continued to make the same mistakes. You know, I just kept bashing my head off the wall and wasn't understanding why I was bleeding type of thing. So there were, there were a lot of different things. Um, so, you know, I ended up relapsing, and made a really big mess of it because I tried to hide it for a while. Um, so then I went back to California. One of my biggest downfalls within all of this in my entire journey is men. Um, so when I went back to California that second time, I met a guy in outpatient. Um, so of course you, you have two people that are like barely a couple months sober trying to make a relationship work, which is just obviously not smart at all. I mean, when they tell you to not date, until you're a year sober. Now being April, I'll have five years sober. And looking back now, I don't even think a year is enough. I really don't. Even this time I got, you know, sober, um, which was April 24th of 2018. I started dating at six months sober, entire mess. I, the fact that I made it out of that sober is, is a miracle in itself, but it is so true. I mean, you just, you have so much work to do still and you have no idea who you are, especially now sober. You know, there's usually this new version of yourself. You're learning new things about yourself that you've never known. And there's just so much that goes into it. I mean, getting sober is just kind of like your first step. And then you have to start working on who you are. What's wrong with you? Why are you making the decisions that you're making? I mean, we know addiction is kind of just a symptom and we're, we're the problem. So Men, that was a big issue, especially him. Um, yeah, so at this point, I I was ready to go back to Pittsburgh for a lot of reasons. I felt really homesick. I felt really depressed. I was withdrawing. I needed substance in order to function in any way, shape, or form, and I had enough. So I went home to Pittsburgh, and I brought this boy with me. Um, so just back and forth, lots of trying to get sober, relapsing, trying to get sober and relapsing. And the number one um, thing that I was lacking was some sort of program, right? Everybody recovers differently. For me, AA is what saved my life. Um, I don't go to meetings as much as I used to. Um, the pandemic changed a lot of things, yeah. including including that. So I have a lot of other ways that uh, things that I do today that help me stay sober. Um, but AA is what saved my life. And I had a pretty traumatic situation happen that I believe is the reason why I am alive and why I'm sober. 
and why I was given that one last chance. So I got sober and relapsed probably about seven times throughout all of this. Um, the, the, the boy who kind of introduced me to this like really dark side of addiction, fortunately is still struggling. He's currently on skid row actually. Um, living in a tent, doesn't have a phone. Nobody has heard from him in years. Very sad. Um, you know, so, um, I, I was living in Pittsburgh and I was using and I was trying to play it off. Like I was sober and I couldn't keep up with my habit and I was spending a lot of my parents' money, um, to try to keep up with my habit. I think I was waiting tables at the time, but obviously it wasn't close to enough um, money. So I was, taking checks from my parents and I was writing them out to myself. I was writing them out to my bank account and I was cashing them. And I did this for months until my dad went to pump gas and his car declined and he called me. And, you know, it's interesting because it's not interesting, but I just remember while I was doing this for all of those months that I was taking their money, anytime my dad would call me, my heart would drop. Because every single time he called, I was like awaiting the dreaded, like, oh, he found out, right? Mm -hmm. And for a long time, it wasn't that, you know, it would be all kinds of other things. And also, I should just throw this in there because I jumped around a little bit. Um, when I originally went to California for the first time, I willingly gave up rights of my daughter. So her father and I were splitting her 50-50. It wasn't through the courts. It was just our schedule that we were able to kind of... Um, figure out on our own. And so when I went to California, I was in no place to make decisions that big. And I had a therapist at the time and she recommended that I do that. And so I followed her advice. I was just kind of like surrendering at this point. And so I gave my half over to my mom and dad. So while I was just gone, you know, in and out of treatment, back and forth from Pittsburgh to California, my parents were co-parenting with the father of my child and his mom as well was kind of helping. So, um, you know, this final time, the day my dad called me and it was the dreaded phone call that I had waited for for months that he found out it was the ultimatum, go to rehab or we're pressing charges. And so, of course, I immediately went to treatment. So this is another important thing I want to say. It doesn't matter what gets you to treatment, right? It doesn't matter if it's an outer source. It doesn't matter if you don't want to be there or maybe you did want to go. It doesn't matter what gets you there. As long as you get there, that's the main thing that I've learned through experience. Now, obviously, while you're there, you do have to find something inside that keeps you there, that keeps you wanting more of it. And I think if you just allow yourself to open your mind up and have like, honest to God, like, a baby itty bitty millimeter of willingness, you have a shot at turning your life around. Um, and that's kind of what it was for me. And um, this would be my last time in rehab by the grace of God um, up until this point in my life, of course. Um, but, and this was April 24th of 2018. And so I went there because I, I didn't want to be in jail. That was my reason for going to treatment. And people ask me a lot, what um what was different uh that time right what was different about rehab that time and looking back and and having a lot of time to think about it what's interesting is that was the only time I ever went to treatment where I was so broken down I didn't want to make friends I wasn't excited about going um I wasn't excited about the meetings I wasn't every other time I went to treatment I was engaging I was at least I mean you're there right you're going to that to you know normal whatever normal is to normal people, it's like 
what do you mean have fun in rehab? But whatever circumstance, wherever you're at in life, you find ways to enjoy yourself. And so in rehab, that happens to be like cornhole and volleyball and <laughs> sitting at the smoke pit all day and, you know, all of these things. And every time I had ever gone to treatment, I would do all of that. I would, I would engage with people. I would make friends. I would play cornhole and we would have a lot of fun. And this was the first time I ever went to treatment where I just none of it. I mean, I was just so broken. I was so beaten down. I was so sick physically. Um, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to make friends, but I also was not gung ho about sobriety. It wasn't, it wasn't because, oh no, I need to focus and I need to get this thing right. I was just, I was just like numb. I was just nothing. There was nothing inside. I was just gone, um, in so many ways. Um, was this last time in rehab was it in california or was it back in pittsburgh i'm sorry it was in pittsburgh and it was also the first time i ever went to treatment in pittsburgh okay ironically enough yes yeah all of these years i find it so interesting that like there was the excitement in going to rehab in california for you and so i can kind of understand how like staying home in pittsburgh would be like the time that you did not want to be there Right, right. And it I I guess I just told myself and a lot of people do this and I get really not angry, but I get kind of defensive when people say like, "Oh, I can't I the reason I can't stay sober is cuz I can't be in my hometown and I can't be around these people." And it's like it's the very place that I finally figured it out, right? And like I thought that for the longest time. And the only reason it it upsets me or I get defensive is because I don't want people to limit themselves, right? On like how or where they can get sober. Yeah. So yeah, after all that running around, first time I ever go to treatment in my hometown is, I, I mean, I've been sober ever since. So, and there's a lot of other reasons why I'm still sober today, but, you know, it was the first time I wasn't getting mail and people weren't checking on me and not a single person would call me. You know, that was another one of the big differences. And so, you know, another really big piece of my story with this being said is, is that I went to treatment and, um, towards the end. I literally had like three days till I was graduating. So a little bit of the life was coming back to me. I mean, I was like starting to get excited about, you know, my new life and being sober and I had nowhere to go. This was also the first time where I had nowhere to go after rehab, nowhere to go. Um, so I, you know, signed up and got it all situated with HR to go to a sober living that was local. So the sober living that I ended up in was 10 minutes down the road from the home that I grew up in my entire life. So very, very close to home. But yet I felt so far away because, you know, I didn't really have anybody. So, you know, I had a plan. So I was starting to get excited. And then I got a letter. I got, they called my name during mail call. I'm like, there's no way. Nobody's sending me mail. There's no way. They're like, it says Abby Fickley. So I open it and I have it. I should have brought it out, but it's, I will never get rid of that letter. I actually have the last um, sentence tattooed on my arm. Um, Yeah, it was a three page disownment letter from my dad. I expected it to be, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. Um, it was like, we cut you off our health insurance, good luck paying for treatment. Um, you know, the one thing, the one and only thing that we'll do for you is, you know, take care of your daughter and make sure she's okay. Um, just lots of horrible stuff. Um, stuff that I deserved, you know, rightful stuff, things that nobody ever told me before that I really needed to hear. 
And then the final part of that letter was, we're pressing charges against you. We decided to go through with the charges anyways. So that was a huge moment for me. Um, That entire process of facing, it was 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking, which was a minimum of seven years in prison. And it wouldn't be my first time dealing with the law, but never anything to that extent. Any jail stays I've had were overnight. Um, I had never been booked or anything um, up until this point. So that was really scary. Um, so, yeah, well, I love that you talk about like the hard boundaries that your dad set with you and the impact that that made for you. I'm kind of curious, like, what was it about that that felt so powerful and I guess helpful for you moving forward? Um, it's hard because at first there was a lot of anger and resentment on my end. You know, I understand why he did what he did, but, um, everybody's different, right? And everybody has a different rock bottom. Unfortunately for me, I was so sick that my rock bottom was, you know, seven years minimum, right? In prison or death. That's where I was at. I wish for me it was, oh, I was homeless. I didn't have anywhere to sleep or I was, you know, dope sick and I didn't want to feel that way anymore. But my life needed to be on the verge of being over, and and my dad was kind of the vessel for that. You know, whether it was death or prison, I was going to lose a very large chunk of my life. I mean, I would have gotten out. My daughter wouldn't have known who I was because at this time she was she was very little, you know. Yeah. Um, thank God in a way now today because she doesn't remember too much of it. She does remember me being gone. I did, you know, affect her. And so I think my dad was just kind of that vessel for me. I would say. Yeah. And Um, I know that that's like really hard for family members to do a lot of the time, especially when it's like you really care about somebody, you love them and you want the best for them. I know it's really hard to set those boundaries. Um, I'm kind of curious if like from this, there's any advice that you might give to somebody who is watching a loved one battle addiction. Absolutely. Um, so it is hard. And I say this all the time, like even, um, just to kind of give an example as a mom with any mom guilt, I have not, um, parenting out of guilt or buying her things, um, because I feel guilt. It's so hard for me not to, that is so hard. I can barely achieve it. And I do, because I know it's, you know, that's not what's good for her. And I dealt with some of that growing up, but it's such a small example of, of, of something of that nature being so difficult that I can't even fathom what it was like for my, for my father to do what he did. And my mom kind of had no part in it. She just stepped back and put her hands up because she didn't necessarily agree with me. Well, she didn't agree with me, but she also didn't necessarily agree with what my dad was doing at the time. So I can't fathom as a parent, but what I tell people a lot is, you know, people ask me questions. How do I set boundaries? how do I do this? And I always give them a very basic way to put it to a loved one. And I always say this, if you put it in a way, because this is the truth, right? To say to somebody who's struggling or somebody that you're setting boundaries with, in this case, an addict, you know, I tell people, you can say something like, I love you so much that I cannot watch you do this to yourself anymore. I love you too much to continue to watch you hurting yourself in whichever way it may be. I can no longer be a part of it. But the moment you are willing or ready 
to accept help or get help. I will be right there to help you in any way that you may need it. And just to kind of like reassure with love, I think is really helpful. But honest to God, there is no way to rid the pain of setting boundaries like that. Whether you're a parent, a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, spouse, sibling, whatever, there is no way to rid the pain that boundaries cause when you're setting them. And I think just knowing that it's going to hurt and knowing that you're doing the right thing, having a really good support system. Al-Anon is so, so helpful. Like I can't even say, um, I know my mom, um, enjoyed Al-Anon. Um, that was something that was really helpful for her as being somebody being on the sidelines. It was like, look, I know I'm not strong enough to do what, you know, her husband, my dad was doing, but she knew that she really couldn't contribute in any other way. So she just kind of stayed over on the sidelines. She did Al-Anon and it was really beneficial to her. So I definitely recommend Al-Anon. And then, you know, that being an example of a way that you could put it to a loved one while setting the boundary. That's perfect. Thank you so I, much. For I will say that. this, like your story hits home for me too, because I haven't personally battled with addiction, but I was in a relationship with somebody who got addicted to painkillers. Um, and mm. I actually, my oldest brother also went through an Oxycontin and heroin addiction oh, no. when I was very young. So uh, fortunately for me, I didn't see a lot of it. Um, and he is clean now, thank God. Oh, that's <laughs> and amazing. Good. But um, when I was in the relationship, I did have to make that decision where I told him, I was like, if you will get help, I will stay here. And I will like fight through this with you if you accept help. But if you keep lying to me, if you don't want to get better, I can't be here for this. And ultimately, I one day just had to like pack my stuff and leave and not talk to him again. And it was the hardest fucking thing because you don't want to like in the back of your mind have that like, well, if things get worse, am I going to feel guilty about this because I walk away? Um, right. I feel like fortunately for me, I had already been through it with my brother and I'd already seen my parents put that same boundary to my brother because my dad did the whole like cutting my brother off and all of that. That's so true. I, was, like, I had that knowledge, you know, like this is a good helpful thing to do. But yeah, good just for hearing you. your story is definitely like bringing up the emotions. I bet. I couldn't even imagine you. being like your side of it for well, you know, honestly. I- Oh, I mean, I tell people I, you know, I've been after I got sober, I, you know, dated my ex, you know, who I will always love and care about who's still struggling, you know? So, I mean, I have experience being sober. Like I've been on the other side of it since sobriety. And I, I say to people all the time, I truly don't know which side is worse. Like as somebody who's been on both, I, I couldn't tell you, I mean, it is just as painful in, uh, you know, different ways, similar ways. I couldn't tell you. I, I they're both just so horrible. I almost sometimes I almost want to say it's harder for the loved one, but it, they're neck and neck. But yeah. both just horrible things. But I give you so much credit. E- even seeing your parents with your brother, that is still because. And you know that's the thing a lot of people say is like, how could I leave someone at the lowest point of their life? Well, like they need that. And as long as yeah. they have somebody there that's still going to support them, why would anybody change? Why would they get sober? Right. I mean, if they yeah. still have somebody supporting them in the way that they're choosing to live, why change? Mm-hmm. And then it's like with those boundaries, another important thing that I'd say to anybody that's struggling with setting them, it's almost like this blind, blind faith, right? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if they're going to, re- well, they're most likely not going to respond well to the boundary, but you don't know how they're going to respond long-term. You don't know if they're going to end up getting help, if the boundary you're setting is going to benefit them, or if God forbid, 
we might lose this person and mm-hmm. de- definitely to the disease. And either way, going into setting boundaries, I think it's really important for people to understand that no matter what the outcome is, it's not, you know, their fault. It's not their responsibility, you know, whether they get sober you again, were like a vessel or a tool that helped them get there. But if they ultimately don't make it out of the disease alive, it's nobody's fault. I mean, addiction, it's a lose lose, right? I mean, of course, unless somebody gets sober, but it's painful. And I will say still to this day, my brother says the thing that saved him was my parents cutting him off. Really? Yeah. So that's why when you said that, I was like, yep, I know somebody that's been in that exact spot. Damn. Yes. Wow. So at what point of this did you start to like share things publicly um, on social media and kind of share your story? That's a really good question. Um, I want to say it about – I had at least two years if not three. I want to say somewhere in between two and three years because I've been on TikTok for about two years now. Two and three years of being sober? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So – before then. And before then, it wasn't like a big secret. It's just, you know, the only people I associated with were people in my town that I knew, right? Friends and family, people in the rooms. Um, But I was always very open about it. I think I just kind of, for me, you know, personally, and not everybody, some people like to keep that anonymous and that's a separate part of their life. And they talk about it with other recovering addicts and alcoholics. But for me, I almost like needed to do it as an account, as a form of accountability. Well, at least when I got my first job out of treatment, when I was living in sober living, I got a serving job because I needed to pay the rent there. Um, I had a curfew <laughs> and I had like house meetings and things I needed to attend. So I kind of had to tell my boss and that's mm-hmm. in itself, all of those experiences with sober living, it was so humbling, but so necessary. The humility was just so necessary, but I actually still work for the same guy today. I walked down, awesome. I was in downtown Pittsburgh. Yeah. I walked into a random bar. I had nothing but like a white tea and a pack of Newports. And I told him my situation and he gave me a job. And now I'm, you know, now I work for him still at a different bar, but now only three days a week because of social media, which has been such a blessing because I've been able to spend more time at home with her and just being a mom and being a cheer coach and all of these amazing things that sobriety brought. But, um, yeah, so I was always pretty open about it, but I didn't start sharing on the internet until I was about three years sober, I'd say. Well, I think yeah. it's so brave the way that you do share so publicly, and I know that it is something that you can get a lot of backlash for, but it's also something that can help a lot of people. Um, so I'm glad because that's how I found you, was you just sharing your story on TikTok and you just popping up on like my For You page. And I just think you can reach so many people through social media nowadays and- I agree. It's It's, so powerful. I mean, it's wild. And I think it makes it, it's helpful for me in terms of being sober, right? Like my favorite thing is speaking at meetings, which I feel really bad now because that's what it made me realize like halfway through this. I'm like, I just started talking like I was sharing at a meeting, completely forgetting that you guys had questions for me. And I feel so bad. (laughs) No, you're fine. You're totally fine. You've been asking the questions, so you're good. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Now I'm like glad we're catching up, but I felt so bad. I'm used to just like, you know, sharing for an hour just, but I like, you know, I like this. So um, yeah, I love, I love sharing at meetings and things like that. So when COVID hit, that's actually when I got into the social media. I always wanted to like do YouTube and do makeup vlogs. And I did for a little bit until she told me that the editing 
she actually told me she was really young. She, you were like five, and she said, "I think I was like maybe in my like." You were five, and like she five. said, "She said that the editing was taking time away from her, and that she it made her feel sad." And literally that day, I was like, "I'm done. I'm done with this." And then COVID happened, and the world got shut down. And then I found TikTok, and I'm like, "Oh, this is nice because it doesn't take me three hours to edit yes. a video." <laughs> And so that's kind of what, so it helps me just as much as it helps other people, you know? And I mean, that's the cool thing of it. Yeah. In general, helping people with this. Totally. And you kind of talked about how you work at a bar now. So I just kind of want to touch on this because you're sober and you work yeah. as a bartender. Has that brought on any challenges or what it's is definitely, that like? It, it's definitely crazy. It's ironic and it's not nothing that I ever intended to do. Um, like I said, when I got out of inpatient, I got a serving job just because as you guys know, it's quick, easy money. And it, that's what I needed at the time. Um, and so throughout that year of serving tables, I was kind of watching the bartenders. Um, I had no experience bartending, but I, I could clearly see that they were making more money than I was as a server. So that was the, for the biggest incentive was the finances of it. Um, but you know, so I started kind of mentioning to my boss that I wanted to be a bartender and he wasn't like super on board with it. So in the meantime, I just kept asking questions and learning how to make drinks. Um, and one day a bartender, no call, no showed on the day that Kenny Chesney was playing at Heinz field. And I worked downtown Pittsburgh and he was like, you ready? And he, and he threw me back there and I've been a bartender ever since that day. Um, and so <clears throat> the number one thing I'll say is obviously alcohol is a part of my story. However, I I've never found a dependence to alcohol. I've never like, it's never been my, my choice. Any issues that alcohol has brought is usually because it was combined with a substance in particular benzos or opiates. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't really get triggered by alcohol. I really, really don't. I don't know how much I can speak for my early sobriety because I wasn't around alcohol as much as I am now. I don't think it would have been a good idea. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. Um, but in terms of triggers, the triggers aren't there with alcohol. I just posted a video today on my TikTok. Somebody asked that question and I said, you know, I don't really feel triggered by alcohol, but if you put an opiate in front of me, you know, I might fold. And that's just the truth. If I told you that, oh, I wouldn't, I'd be strong enough, I'd be lying or that would potentially be a red flag, but you know, so I, I can't, I can't say for sure. I'd like to believe that, um, I would be strong enough, but I just, I think I'm far enough along in my sobriety that I kind of, I know my triggers, right. I know the things that, and it's just not worth playing with fire. I tell people all the time, I'm like, it's just simply not worth the money because without sobriety, you can't make money. I mean, it doesn't, at the end of the day, there are so many jobs out there and everybody recovers differently. Everyone has different triggers. Some people drink and don't, you know, do substances every there's, especially nowadays, you know, I mean, it's just so not linear and everybody has their own journey and their own triggers. And so for me, yes, alcohol is fine. I spill it on myself all night long. Now I will say I don't really sample, um, beers. If I need somebody to, if I need to know how a drink tastes, I have a coworker sample it. Um, so I don't do anything like that. I don't sip the drinks. I don't drink at all. Um, by choice. I just, I don't, um, I just think after being sober as long as I have, I've, I'm just so used to being in control, right? Of my mind, my body, my surrounding. I, it's not even something that is appealing to alcohol. It's just not something that's appealing to me. So, 
you know, but that I don't ever want other people to think like, oh, she can do it. I should be able to do it because it's just such a person to person thing. But yeah. um, I think the hardest things are I've had a couple situations, right? Like I found a wallet one time. I opened it to um, pull their ID out to see if I knew who it was or, to, you know, so I could return it to them. And a bag of Coke fell out like right in my lap. <clears throat> so that was interesting. And that was a couple of years ago. So that was when I was a little bit more sober. We it's laughed. It's like a true it. test of life right, right? there. You're like, I mean, life's trying to shit on me right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was interesting. Now, uppers weren't my favorite. So that was another blessing with that. Um, so I've had like a couple situations like that. I've, you know, I've had people that are kind of like falling out at the bar and I don't serve people like that. And my boss, you know, will ask them to leave. But Things like that can be a little bit triggering just because it's more in my realm of like what I did. But um, ultimately, it's not bad. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, if it was stressful enough to trigger me on a daily or even a weekly basis, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate you coming on and just being so vulnerable and open and just sharing all that you did today. Um, I just want to wrap it up. If you can let our listeners know where to find you and connect with you online, um, we'd love to include that in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. So all of my handles are just my first and last name, Abby Fickley. Um, And you can find me. My number one platform that I'm on the most is TikTok. Um, And then you can also find me on Instagram. And I also just started my YouTube shorts journey. So find me over there too. Um, So yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it.